What would it be like if you could get into a conversation with somebody in the future and not just any anybody, but someone who actually has authority and insight uh, can see in almost like real time in a superpower kind of way what the future holds and what you ought to do about it? Well, that's what we're going to do today in our conversation with Kevin Kelly. Kevin is senior maverick at Wired Magazine. He co-founded Wired in 1993 and served as its executive editor for its first seven years. He's also the founding editor and co-publisher of the popular Cool Tools website. And he has published and edited a Whole Earth Review from 1984 to 1990. That's this like journal of unorthodox technical news. He co-founded the ongoing Hackers Conference and was involved in the launch of The Well, a pioneering online service started in 1985. His books include the best-selling New Rules for the New Economy, Out of Control, The Silver Cord, and of course, What Technology Wants. His new book coming out very shortly is called The Inevitable, and indeed, it is the inevitable. When I had a chance to reach out to Kevin years ago now, when I was writing my first book, I asked for permission to write about a blog post, actually to quote the blog post and then comment on it, called A Thousand True Fans. And this one article he really reset my entire vision of what it means to be a part of the internet age. And this takes a quantum leap forward to not only describe what we're in the middle of, but describe what's coming. So if you're someone who is in the midst of creating and trying to make money from what you're creating or make a point from what you're creating, and you want to know how to do that in a highest and best way, in a way that doesn't just allow you to survive, but also thrive, this conversation with Kevin Kelly is absolutely for you. You have to acknowledge that I think your job is to prepare for the luck, to be prepared to see that there's a lucky time and then you can grab it. I'm your host, Dane Sanders, and I want to welcome you to Converge. Kevin Kelly, welcome to Converge. Hey, it's my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. I am so honored that you're here. You and I had the chance to meet in person. For me, that was a massive dream. You and I were at the Q Ideas Conference in Denver, Colorado recently, and you and I have a a number of common friends, and uh, Gabe Lyons, Seth Godin, and a few others. And when I saw you across the room, I ran over. I was a little bit embarrassed at how uh, fanboy I was uh, in that that context, but I, I can't overstate how significant your influence has been. I wrote my first book, Fast Track Photographer. I have a whole section dedicated to your blog post, A Thousand True Fans. And it felt like you were this future sage uh, talking to me in present day. And you offered me a a kind of a a channel or a a pathway to move forward that I didn't know was even available. And I'm guessing you play that kind of role for a lot of folks these days, as you have seen a lot of context in your history with Wired Magazine and way beyond Wired in your own writings and communications and advising. Talk a little bit about your career that got you to a place where so many folks like me are looking to you for insight as to where this world is headed. Well, you use the word career, but that's probably the one word I wouldn't use about my own path because as you know, a college dropout and a former hippie, I kind of tried very hard to avoid anything that sounded like a career. <laughs> and so uh, if I've been able to been helpful to people, it's only because I'm trying to pay forward the immense help that I got from 
other people that I looked to for advice in the past. Who were some of those people? The primary one is a guy named Stuart Brand, who was, I mean, he's still living, but he was the founder of the Whole Earth Catalog, which was something that I read just as I was graduating from high school, and it, it kind of set me on the path. Where I'm going, which uh, the Whole Earth Catalog at the time was a news-printed, cheaply-printed, fast, user-generated content about doing it yourself, and it was kind of the became the Bible for do it yourself and do it yourself in the broadest sense of like grow your own food and build your own house and create your own school and make as many things as you could yourself. And I, and I was kind of trying to do that as a kid in the sixties in suburbia. It was, there was not a lot of um, assistance at the time and the whole earth catalog came along and it was just like, bong. it was just, just resonated with me. And I eventually got to work I, the only place I wanted to work, and so I eventually did get a job there, which is another story in itself, and working with Stuart and reading him for years and years before that greatly set my own sensibility about how to live. And in his circle, there were many other people who came to influence me, and I feel that I'm kind of part of the heritage of taking some of the things that they've known and trying to pass them on to others and to um, widen that. And I think the whole maker movement and a lot of the stuff that's happening with the internet and the kind of user-generated passion and enthusiasm is all part of this thing that we were trying to do in a much smaller scale back in the 60s and 70s and 80s. And so I, I really feel that there's there's a long line of people before me, then I'm just kind of really, you know, a person in the real aid just passing that on. Hmm. That's a radical understatement <laughs> of what you've done. I mean, when I think about the kind of icons of our age, at least the virtual age, and again, I'm probably getting the, the labels wrong here, but it, it, it does strike me that, you know, when people talk about the lore of like the Steve Jobs of the world or the early days of Microsoft versus Apple or whatever, on a popular level, we hear all the stuff or the big biographies that came out or Steve's passing. You, you see these kind of building blocks of a time, and it seems like you, Wired Magazine in itself, played a massive role in helping to form the language and how we talk about the conversation around this world we're creating. It's it's true, but I think what, what it's very hard to see that this there's actually part of a continuum, and, and even the things, I mean, let me give you just kind of a small example, but, you know, when Wired launched, it was this huge hit, but in fact, I have been talking and i've been publishing the same people that were in the early issues of wired i've been publishing in another place called the whole earth review which was uh, on newsprint and black and white and there was no ads and that for years and years i've been publishing those people saying the same things in that magazine and nobody was paying attention uh what changed was sort of the focus of the culture the spotlight moved over to where we were but there was, I mean, there was a long chain preceding all this. So Wire did not really disappear out of nowhere. There was a continuous, unbroken chain of people thinking about these things and talking about them. And, you know, there was a heritage. All those ideas came from somewhere. And what changed was sort of the, the spotlight shifted, the, the center of gravity where people were thinking, were getting their 15 minutes of fame, that's what changed. And suddenly nerds were cool. Nerds had been around. We were talking and discussing these things for, for decades. 
and suddenly the same conversation was now under the dome and it seemed as if they came out of nowhere but in fact it had been there for a long time that makes total sense i mean especially because it just hadn't hit the the zeitgeist of of kind of yeah. everyone's knowledge right right and so just as sort of a going on this theme what one of the things that if you talk to people who have been very very successful and you get them to be very very honest they will acknowledge that there's also a certain amount of element of luck in these things and so there there was a huge element of luck in wired that we were at the right time at the right place if we had started wired a couple of years earlier it would not it would have ran out of gas and failed a couple of years later of course it didn't make would have had the same impact so there's there's timing there's 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 the luck in timing and i think you have to acknowledge that i think your job is to prepare for the luck is, is to be prepared to see that there's a lucky time and then you can grab it in a certain sense or you can exploit it but you you you, you can prepare yourself to be sensitive to it but there is absolutely an element of of luck in a lot of the really big mega successes. Um, people, you know, you'll hear their story and they've tried and tried and tried and tried and eventually they succeeded. But there was certainly hard work involved. But there was also certainly an element of luck. And I think the element that you want to prepare yourself for is is to be ready to exploit that luck when it comes. And, and that, that does take a lot of hard work and skill. I, I actually think that's a, a really helpful thread for a couple of reasons. One, it's funny. I don't know if you remember that old book that Richard Bowles wrote called uh, What Colors Your Parachute. Do you remember that well, book? Of course. I highly recommend it. In fact, I look at that probably every two years, in part because I've had children going through this process, but also because I think the insights about it are incredibly profound. But what were you going to say about it? One, he's a friend, and he wrote the foreword to my first book. And it was because my, my book is called Fast Track Photographer, and it wasn't about photography. It was really around the most efficient way to figure out what you ought to be doing is to start with you. <laughs> if you're going to be your name.com on the internet, you might want to think about that. And he was very gracious to read it, and uh, we became friends with that process, and he uh, endorsed it. But as I think, I think about that book regularly, too. And when I think about my own kids or folks I get a chance to talk to about their future, it does seem like a broad skill set is critical. And knowledge of how your particular contribution could form a, I like how you didn't make it about a career, but really made it about a contribution from, from your locus of, you know, what you could uniquely bring to the table, if I heard you right. And w this notion of luck and identifying when is the opportunity to not be ahead of your time, but to be right on time, to take advantage of opportunities, that seems like a skill set that I don't hear enough people talking about. Even if we can't control when luck arrives, anticipating that if, if luck comes your way, how can you take advantage of it? A any thoughts on that as a skill set for developing one's career? Uh, I think the major skill set is to, to recognize it. It's, it's kind of like maybe being a little humble in the sense that you have to understand that you kind of have to keep going until the luck arrives. It's like I'm a pro pronoian. I believe in pronoia. You know what paranoia is, right? Paranoia is where you believe that the everyone's conspiring against you. Pronoia is where you believe that the universe is conspiring for you, that the entire world is trying to make the world better for you. And so if you kind of take adopt that attitude, then it becomes a lot easier to kind of recognize when the universe is conspiring to, 
to push you forward, and you can kind of go along with it. I think it's very related to you know generosity in a certain sense. It's, it's the generosity of accepting a gift in a certain sense, which some people find actually harder than than giving, which is being given to and accepting a gift. And so you uh, and and not thinking that it was yourself is just like no, I'm. This is you know the universe is giving me something at this moment and I'm going to accept it even though I may not feel ready or whatever it is but you, you're kind of going with the flow in a certain sense and not necessarily um, believing but you're kind of believing in this in accepting it in, in a larger sense of this opportunity and all the risks that it may entail but you accept it as a, as a gift and I think that sense which is very related to kind of giving, it's the other side of that. I think that's it's something that you can, you know, be taught, you can get better at, you can marshal your other skills of, of acceptance. I recently had a guest on this show by the name of Bob Berg, and he was a co-author of a book called The Go-Giver, as opposed to The Go-Getter. He basically made that case, I think, over the course of these principles that he felt were very important if you're going to make a, really have an extraordinary existence, uh, you lead with all of these principles around give, 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 give. But the, the final principle was really around developing a capacity to receive and anticipate it. To actually, if you give properly, you can anticipate it will come back and uh, to be, to be in a sense, ready for it and not disqualify yourself. Right. I actually, one of the, 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 the ways, one of the exercises you might think that I learned that was, was hitchhiking, uh, which I spent a lot of time when I was young doing. And the thing about hitchhiking, I mean, some people were better than others. And part of, part of the, the skill set was letting people help you, um, asking for help, and then accepting what you got, accepting what happens, accepting the gift and wherever it was going to lead. And it was sort of like, rather than giving to strangers, it was like letting strangers give to you. And that was... I think a great it was a great lesson in accepting and letting others give to you and learning how to do that well. And I think that's part of how you you know accept luck in in the same way. To honor your time and I really want to spend a little bit of energy here talking about your new book that is coming out called The Inevitable and as I was reading it, especially over the weekend in anticipation of today, I know it's an advanced copy. It's almost out for everyone else to have access to. Is it out yet? Is it in the, on the streets? The publication date is June 6th. Okay. They'll also be available in Audible version as well at the same time. Well, it's, it's extraordinary. In fact, as I was reading it, I kept, especially when I got to the final section around the beginning <laughs> that you taught, you call the last chapter, if I remember right, the beginning, and you actually are describing this reality. It, it felt to me like you were, Speaking in, in true to your true to your title to an inevitable reality that is coming and and as I was reading it, I thought, how can this not be I, some version of this? Like the form will look maybe different than I'm anticipating, but that it will be feels entirely impossible to avoid, apart from some kind of catastrophic thing. And even then, I started to think through some scenarios where catastrophic events might still not interrupt it. But but that said. I'm wondering if we could frame out this conversation, uh, maybe for the duration of our time, around, you know, we're speaking to an audience of people who, who are trying to make something out of what they make. And they're really interested in not only doing that in a vacuum, 
but doing it in the very real world that we're in and the world that is coming. So in a sense, I'd like to start with your last chapter in mind, where you're speaking backward from that future place to now. And if I'm if I have earbuds in and I'm listening to this conversation, in a sense, you're the the future Kevin Kelly, talking to the present day creative, trying to make it away with their business. And for, I guess to firstly start off, could you share a little bit about what that world looks like? A little bit. What do you think the inevitable will be? Thank you for that you know, very well crafted intro because I think you did sum up what I'm trying to do in the book very well. And I appreciate that. And it was very clear. There's, you know, a lot to say. I, it took me a whole book to kind of say it. So just to, to summarize the, perhaps the most relevant parts for this audience of, of people who are actively creating and want to make their living doing that, I would say a couple of things. I think there are certain technologies that are coming that are inevitable and that will continue to grow. And most of those things are kind of present already and some of them have been present for a while, but they will just continue to accelerate. And our job, so to speak, our choice, we don't have a choice in the fact that they're going to arrive, but we have a choice in their character. So I would say that the Internet was inevitable on any planet in the galaxy that had civilized, you know, civilization to some degree. They will have an Internet. The character of the internet, what it, what it's like, whether it's international, whether it's commercial or non-commercial, whether it's open or closed, th- those aren't inevitable, and that's what we have a lot of choice about, and that and that character makes a huge difference to us. So, there will be phones. The iPhone's not inevitable, and we have a choice about the nature of the telephone system, but not that they're going to have one. And so. There are things coming like artificial intelligence and virtual reality that are inevitable, but the character of them, whether we weaponize them or not, all those kinds of things are up to us, and we ha- and that's what we can choose now. And I would say that the second part of that is that the way we choose these things, the way we steer them is by engaging, that, that we can't prohibit these, we can't stop them, we can't outlaw them, you can't outlaw Uber, you can't outlaw AI, you can't stop these things, you can only, we can only engage them by embracing them, by using them as how we steer them and how we, how we form them. So those are two parts of it, is that these things are coming in the, in the large form, they're inevitable, the, the specifics are not, and the way we we decide the specifics is by embracing and engaging in them and, and, and using them. And so there are things that are coming that we can't stop. And like, for instance, copying is, is one thing. So the Internet's the world's largest copy machine. And anything that can be copied, if it touches the Internet, will be copied. So you can't stop the copying. You can only work with it. And so this is you know very pertinent to people who make things that can be easily copied like a photograph like music like movies like a book and so what becomes valuable in this internet of copying everything are things that can't be copied and what kinds of things can't be copied well there's lots of them like trust you can't copy trust and store and download it you have to earn trust is kind of a is based on a relationship that is in that's generated in in the exchange with two people. Immediacy is something that can't be copied. That's also generated in this exchange or personalization. So going back to the copy thing, like if you're making music, a copy of the music will be made. If you want a copy of the music, you can get music almost anywhere eventually for free. 
if you want to have music that's personalized, say say it's custom acoustics to your living room, then that bit of music, which has been personalized, is not easily copied. That's where the value, the value is actually in the personalization and not in actually copying the music. The same thing with authentication, if you have an authentic, or immediacy, you might get the, you might get the work of art immediately rather than having to wait for it. Uh, waiting to find a copy somewhere so you're really selling the immediacy you're really selling the personalization you're really really seling the authentication you're, you're really selling these other attributes that aren't easily copied and that's where basically the creative work will go into experiences that can't be copied and you know into aspects that are not easily copied and the things that are easily copied just become ubiquitous and so there's that shift so, so that you should be aware of that that copying is only going to increase you can't stop you can't alloy you can't do copy protection none of those things work and the other examples like that are coming along like tracking we're very concerned about tracking surveillance the internet is also the world's largest tracking machine anything that can be tracked will be tracked and so we can't stop the tracking. We can only civilize it. We can only make it more symmetrical. We, there are things we can do by engaging it, but we can't, aren't going to stop it. So the thing I would say to, to curators is that the other thing we know is that there's going to be more works of art, more works available than ever before in the history of the world, that this is sort of for the audience, the best time to be alive ever. But for the creator, it's... The challenge is going to be that there will be so, so many things made and created. The tools of creation continue to get easier and easier. And so the shortage, the scarcity is attention. And I think we're going to move away from where money is the most important thing, where to attention is the most important thing. And that's the scarcity is, is sort of managing, harnessing, focusing, cultivating attention. It becomes the real hurdle, the real barrier, the real scarcity. And kinds of things that we see going on with social media is really part of a first step in moving away from where the currency is actually money and the currency is more of attention. And that becomes ever more important and ever harder to to manage. That reminds me a lot of, you know, when I, you and I have this common colleague in Seth Godin, and he's a huge fan of your work. He just was promoting it recently as well. He's the one who actually, I think, put me on to a thousand true fans. Uh, although I like to think I found it before he did, but that's not possible. But he, uh, that was supposed to be funny, but he, uh, uh, he talks about permission as kind of, or, or I, I guess his attention is a kind of a, a corollary to that. Would you agree? Or is there nuance that we're missing? Okay. One of the radical ideas that I actually explore in the book is if it's really true that attention is the most valuable resource, then the idea that I give my attention away to, to someone who sticks an ad in my face will probably change. In all logic, I should be charging people to look at their ads, okay? That I should get paid for looking at it because my attention is scarce. My, my attention is the most valuable thing. So I should be charging to look at people's ads. Or I should be charging, and, and this is Esther Dyson's idea, I should be charging to read someone's email. If someone sends me email, I should have a, there should be a price, and the price may change depending on who you are. But I, you know, you're, looking, you're asking for my attention. 
And so uh, we'll charge for, for getting attention. And once that happens, then I think what you have is you have this intermediation of advertising because advertisers right now say, well, I can, I can get your product in front of this person's attention, but they're, but they're not paying that person. But what if, what if you took that money that a company would use for advertising and you directly went right to the people who are most influential and basically gave them the money or gave them the products directly in order to get their attention? You're, you're actually paying them. You bypass the advertising altogether. And I think that's sort of what's happening, where we're going to really shift this foundation, which is right now the current foundation of the internet economy, which is advertising, in which the people who are looking at it are not getting paid at all. They're actually paying in a certain sense. And that, I think, can shift where the attention is so valuable from people that you try to go to them directly. And, and that's a little bit of kind of like what the Thousand True Fans were saying. You can go to your fans directly. And here you can kind of you're going to the people who are reading your ads directly and, and skipping the, the, the advertisers entirely. So there's kind of a whole new way to imagine uh, an economy of attention where the fans make the ads. And that's another thing that will be coming up. It's like there'll be user-generated advertising, people making ads, and the ones that get clicked on, they get some revenue from that. And so you have a sense of which... There's a kind of a peer-to-peer social ad network. And this is what this is all about, is reimagining where attention really is valued and paid for. And so you would be giving, you would figure out, you know, who has the most influence because it's, you know, not just who they're influencing, but what influence those friends of the friends have. And you can kind of do these calculations that are very complicated, which may not be like CEOs. They may be just neighborhood a girl in the neighborhood who has a lot of very influence in her, you know, peer group. Those are the people who have influence, and in that you, the, the the sort of money would flow to them directly, without a lot of the intermediates of these advertising companies. The fans themselves would would do more of the advertising, and as we move as a creator into this future, I think. You want to pay attention to the flows of attention because wherever attention flow, money will flow later. That's sort of my maxim, which is that money follows attention. And so you really want to follow the flow of attention because wherever that's going, the money will flow to that later. And pay attention to where people are giving attention, swapping attention, paying for attention, getting paid for attention. That's really, I think the flows that you want to pay attention to now. That makes complete sense. I used to think of marketing maxims of, you know, location, location, location. What I'm hearing you say now is more attention, 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 because it's not so, if there is no kind of corner city block that you need to be on anymore, the mind space that people have is the new corner. Is that right? Right. And and it can be very easily subverted, um, our attention. We have kind of, you know, monkey minds that are, that are, can be easily distracted. And so I'm not, necessarily saying that you know you have to do kind of a buzzfeed mode where where they you know basically are just they're concerned with little moments and, and get these little moments of attention i think there are other kinds of attention there's long-form attention there's sustained attention there's uh, things where people are you know will keep coming back to something maybe it's because it's uh, something core to them so I think we're just at the beginning of kind of understanding 
understanding how our attention works, how it's diverted, how we can recapture it, how to train it, you know, the whole techno-literacy of, of protecting our own uh, attention. I think these will all become life skills as we go forward, understanding that our attention is really our most valuable resource, and therefore we have to use both literacy and technology to try and make sure that we're not squandering it, making sure that we get the maximum for it, etc. We're not thinking in those terms right now, but I think we will, and and for the creators of the world, I think this is the this is the currency. This will be a currency that will be as least important as money, because wherever the attention goes, money will follow. Okay, that's so helpful, and that probably sets up our final piece, because I, I keep coming back to, let's take a service professional, for example. Let's say they, we mentioned photographers before, like they're, they have a talent with a, a gadget, like a camera, and they have a, an eye, and they have the skill set requisite to get their job done, but they're really two kinds of people in that one person. On the one hand, they're people who are trying to, you know, earn the attention of people, of folks who might become their customers, and also just people who could appreciate their work or whatever their motivation is, whether they're trying to make a buck or trying to make a point. They're doing something as a vehicle for people to appreciate their service. On the other hand, they're also just regular people who are being kind of fought for, like their own attention. I think about that on a couple fronts. One is just a consumer. Another is, I, you know, if I'm a photographer, I have other vendors that I'm working with and they're fighting to get my attention. So I guess my final question is really twofold. One is, given that being our, our future and what's coming, how should I as a creative service professional say, I could be a product too, but it doesn't really matter. How, how should I be relating with earning people's attention? Because there's ways to, a lot of folks are trying to gain people's attention still and will, I suspect, for some time. But there's that question. And the secondary question is just as a human, how should I be stewarding my attention? How can I put myself in the best possible position to pay attention to the most important things moving forward? Does that question make sense? Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, you know, I started off as a photographer, not as a professional, but as a um, as an obsessed photographer. That's what I was doing in, instead of college. <laughs> And I've had some success in that. I did a book of photographs for Tashin. Tashin published my early photography. I'm working on another book right now. But I didn't know that about you. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah. I like to, you know, the, the, the thing is, is, is that I started photography at a time when it was really very scarce and precious in a certain sense. And you know, I'm trying to explain to my, my kids that when I was growing up, each family had like a brownie camera and it would have a 24 roll exposure roll of film in it and you would get it developed once a year and it, the pictures would come back and there would be a two from Christmas and two from Easter and two from 4th of July That's right. and, and you know and so you would do 24 images a year for the whole family and I was going out in Asia and I had a backpack that had 500 rolls of 36 exposure films and I would shoot two rolls a day, I would shoot 70 pictures a day, and I'd come back and tell people, and their, and their jaws would drop. They would, it was unconceivable why anybody would shoot that many images in one day. So that's how, pre- and I would be the oftentimes the only person with a camera for hundreds of miles, right? I mean, I would be photographing these things, and I was literally the only one who had a camera with, with film in it for hundreds of miles around. And so this was a very, very precious kind of, of a thing. And now, of course, everybody's a photographer. There's, there's one, you know, and, and you take 
people normally take 70 pictures a day without even thinking. And this is just everybody. And so what, what's different? And, and, and I think the challenge for all creative people in, in the future is going to be to think different, to, to, have, to have a different idea while you're connected. And that's the important thing. It's, it's like if you're not connected to anybody, it's actually not that difficult to have a different idea. But then it's not very useful to anybody because you're not connected. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, if you're connected, it becomes very hard to have a, a different idea because you're connected to everybody else. You kind of have a group mind. The real challenge, and I think the real economic value is going to be to be different, to think differently, to see differently while you're connected. I think if you can do that, if you can be connected, I mean, not just literally connected, but also culturally connected and see differently or be different, then that is, that's where the value will come from. That's where the ideas will come from. That's where, that's where, that's what we'll pay for. That's the experience that's the uncopyable thing is to see, be, think differently while you're connected. And I mean connected in the broadest sense of like it makes sense to people. It's it's part of the you know, I mean this is the the art is is that you are connecting in some ways, you're culturally relevant, yet you're different. And so that is going to become more and more difficult as we become more and more connected. Because everybody sees the same movies, watches the same right. shows, listens to the same music, studies the same subjects in school. I mean, globally. And so to actually succeed in seeing, thinking, hearing different while you are connected and uh, can communicate that connected, that's where the value will be. So, so people will, will value that, that experience. It's Again, it's... It's not in the copyable part of it. It's it's in the experiential, the generative aspect of it, the thing that can't be copied. Yeah. And the reason why people will come to you or someone else is because there will be no one else who can do that. I mean, that's sort of going back to your reference to the you. You start with a you. The reason why you can have some success is because you are different. And if you can get to the point where you can communicate that or accentuate or in some ways isolate that difference while you're connected bringing it back to others then then you have you have a role and i think i think that's going to become it's easier because now we're connected and you can communicate that but it's harder because the more we're connected the more of a challenge it is to to really think and be different you know, I, I'm just curious, just practically, does that, one of the reasons why so many folks are spending so much energy these days around how to stay awake at the wheel, like whether they're, you know, waking up and meditating and noticing their body in the middle of their trance-like day, or I, I'm just reading this great book by this author named Krista Tippett from On Being, and she has this, these amazing insights on what she thinks the most, the five most critical elements of becoming wise in this age are, and she talks about the five things include words, the words we use. Second is our bodies, how we relate with our bodies. The third is love. The fourth is faith. And the fifth is hope and how you relate with these massive concepts. It seems like in all cases, you have to have a, like you say, kind of a both awareness of what's going on, but not so much of an attachment where you become the thing or become not distinct from this this global 
what, what is the word you use? There's actually a word for it. The hyperconnected holos. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So, so, so going back to the book, the inevitable, the, the last chapter, I talk about the other inevitable technological thing is 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 that we are connecting ourselves together constantly, and our all our machines and all the AIs and intelligence. And entities that will and that will entail, as well as the seven billion of us humans, and together we form this kind of very large organism, super organism, where we're connected all the time. We're we're having collective thoughts. We're doing collective work, which is where all the most amazing things are happening. If you think about Wikipedia, Facebook, with a you know 1.5 billion people doing things together at the same time. And new technologies that allow us to collaborate at a scale that was just not possible before in real time. That's where all the, the sort of miraculous, amazing things are going to be happening is, is, is we, we, we have this sort of no, new level of engagement of being where we are individuals at the same time we are part of this very, very large thing that may even be beyond our understanding to some extent. And it's, that's sort of scary, but it's thrilling at the same time. That's sort of where the uh, the technology is taking us, but the the challenge will be to become a distinct individual while being connected to this holos. So the great thing about this technology is it can emphasize or accentuate both. It can both make us more individual and more powerful as an individual as in our uniqueness, and at the same time enable and empower our ability to cooperate and collaborate together. But what we as individuals want to, to continue to do is, is to accentuate and individuate and speciate our role in that collective. And that is a lifelong challenge. And and I think for me, my own vocabulary and my own thinking about how how you do that is, for me, this is the quest to do things that no one else can do or wants to do. And part of that exercise, I think, is when I have a good idea, I try to give it away as much as possible. And what I'm trying to do is to see, I'm trying to only wind up doing the things that I can't give away. In other words, if if there's an idea that I can give away, that means, oh, someone else can do it. I don't Mm. have to do that. If, if I have a good idea that keeps coming back and I literally try to, to talk as many people as I can into stealing the idea and nobody does, then I'm left with a good idea that no one wants to do that only I can do. That's the good news because that means that no one else is going to do it. This is a job for me. This is something I should be doing. Mm. And so in a certain sense, what I want to end up doing are the things that no one else can do and that's the best of all worlds because when a person is doing something in a way that only they can do, we recognize that almost as a kind of a genius. That's that's beautiful. If they're doing it well and good and they're and, 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 and if you're doing something that only you can do, there's there's a level of passion and engagement that is very very, very exhilarating. And that that's where that's where we give our money to is is someone's doing something is it's only they can do it in their way, and it's amazing. And it's hard to imitate because they are kind of reaching for some combination of talents that, that only they have that allows them to kind of produce this. And so I think 
that's sort of where my quest is right now in the sense of, okay, we have lots of opportunities I could be doing. I can think I, I have an opportunity to do something. Oh, I would do a great job. I would really do that well. I would love doing that. But wait, other people could do that. I don't need to do that then. That's one less thing that I need to do. I need to kind of continue to focus on the things that I'm going to be the only one to do it. And that's how I write my books in a certain sense. Is I try to give them away. I, I tell people the ideas. I want them. I encourage them to steal these things. And if nobody else would do it and I keep thinking this is a really good idea, then okay, that means I have to do it. So, you know, that's that's how it works. And I think... What, the, what you end up with then is there's a huge relief because if you see someone competing, doing something similar, you just say, yeah, you do it. Good. I, that means I don't need to do it. I'm not going to race. <laughs> I'm not going to race in this. It means one of us is redundant. Therefore, I'm going to continue seeking the thing that no one else is, even wants to do. That's even better. And I think that recipe of kind of only doing what no one else can do is this idea of kind of like – thinking different while being connected friends if you can hear my voice uh i cannot uh implore you enough if you want to know the future go out and get the inevitable by kevin kelly and kevin if you could just share uh obviously the book will come out the audiobook's coming out you have a lot of other writings and creative endeavors that you have put out uh, is kk.org the best place to find all that yes yeah, so i have a website there um not so active uh recently but i have a couple other hobbies like a uh, documentaries true films so i review the best documentaries uh, that i come across in something called true films and these days i'm trying to be a little bit active on twitter at kevin to kelly and i still actually uh read uh, google plus a lot where they actually have long uh, comments that are intelligent <laughs> versus YouTube, <laughs> whatever. I don't know how, why that works, but it does. But KK.org is the place where um, I park at my home. Well, again, I everything you've said is so accurate to how you've lived. And I just want to say this as a final word is I remember when I reached out, it was back, I think it was in 2009 when I reached out and said, hey, may I publish that section of A Thousand True Fans in my book? And you responded immediately, which, first of all, threw me for a loop. And second, uh, you were so gracious to say, of course, yeah, it, if it's an idea that I want to have people share, share it. And it was amazing to me how just making that request empowered me to be someone, not only I was paying attention to you, but got to be someone who was connecting you to other folks. It's just who you are, Kevin. And I, I, on behalf of so many folks, and you hear this all the time, but I can't say it enough as one more voice in the crowd. We're so thankful for your contribution, and we can't all of us uh, who appreciate it are eager to stand on your shoulders. And so thank you so much for what you've done. And friends, go get his book. Well, I really appreciate your interest in my work and the opportunity to talk about it right here. And to all you listeners out there, I'm going to repeat what Esther Dyson told me, which is make new mistakes. Thank you, sir. All righty. Thank you. This was episode one, season two of Converge, the Business of Creativity podcast. Music today provided by Triple Scoop Music, the leading music service for creative professionals. Find the perfect song for your next project at triplescoopmusic.com. Fastermind.co is home base for all things Converge. It's also where you can find exactly what you need to make real change happen. Like ever want to ditch your not-so-smart smartphone addiction? Knock that out this week. No kidding. Find out more at fastermind.co. Until then, I'm Dane Sanders. I cannot wait until next time.